What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Right out the the gate today, I want to warn you. I want to give you a disclaimer about this message. If I were to rate this as a movie, I would be generous to say this sermon is going to be rated R. So right now, you're welcome to do three things. You're welcome to buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the crazy ride that you're about ready to experience. Number two, you can leave today and I will not show anything against you. Um, Or number three today, you can ask your children to go down to junior church. But with that being said, throughout history, we have observed the depravity of mankind. That is how man is absolutely total sinful. From the thoughts of our imaginations to the words that we display out of our mouth to the deeds that we do through what we are doing in our lives. We can see in the ancient world all the way up today that man has not changed and man is still completely, totally, utterly wicked. And one of the ways that we can observe the absolute depravity of mankind is the way that people are executed as criminals. As I've been studying this passage, I decided I wanted to look up some of the major ways that man has executed criminals throughout history. And we'll get into the crucifixion here in a second. But I thought it was mind-blowing that people would be boiled alive. Listen to this article. In fact, one of the crazy, inhumane ways of somebody being executed is by being boiled to death. Listen to this article. A slow and agonizing punishment. This method traditionally saw the victim gradually lowered feet first into boiling oil, water, or wax. If the shock of the pain did not render them immediately unconscious, the person would experience the excruciating sensation of their outer layers of skin utterly destroyed by immersion burns, dissolving right off their body, followed by the complete breakdown of the fatty tissue boiling away beneath. It seems safe to assume that such a horrendous fate, one of the worst execution methods ever devised, would be reserved for the foulest of murders, but historical documents refute this. Emperor Nero is said to have dispatched thousands of Christians in this manner. While in the Middle Ages, the main recipients of the punishment were not killers or rapists, but coin forgers, particularly in Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. In Britain, meanwhile, King Henry VIII introduced the practice for executing those who used poison to, com- to commit murder. And shockingly, this practice was believed to be used by the government of Uzbekistan in 2012 to torture several suspected terrorists to death. 
Some of the craziest ways that people are executed is by this manner, also by rats. What they would do in the ancient world, and even more recent, is they would take a person, lay them down, put a box on their stomach, and put rats inside the box, and then heat the box up so what the rats would do was eat through the flesh of a human being. And the human would, would, would feel the rats eating inside their body and their organs. Another way is a spike. They would take an individual and through, through their rectum, they would ingest a spike through them and it would go through and he would cover, come through either their face or their spine or somewhere in their torso. And then one of the most horrific ways to die through execution is through crucifixion. What we see today and this brings up a crazy discussion that we are having recently in our time is capital punishment. Is capital punishment right or wrong? And obviously our final authority is God's word. And before we make a decision about a question like that, we should ask ourselves, what does scripture teach about capital punishment? In the book of Genesis, we see that God is the one who instituted capital punishment. In other words, he did that for murders. Those who killed a life, they deserve to have their life taken away because they killed somebody who was made in the image of God. But then in the New Testament, the Bible speaks about how Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 that God gave government the power and authority to issue capital punishment if they so desire. So if a nation decides they do not want to enforce capital punishment, that is their God-given right. And then if a nation does decide to, to, to issue out capital punishment towards criminals, that is their God-given right. But notice today, nowhere in Scripture did God ever give the church the authority to take a life. Now that being said, I find it interesting that the way Jesus died was through capital punishment. The title of my sermon today is this, The Day the Messiah Was Crucified. The Day the Messiah Was Crucified. In your mind, think about all the people who are rightfully or wrongly executed. And now we know that the Son of God, God incarnate, living among humanity, was executed as guilty, but actually he was innocent. As I shared with you the last few weeks, the key thought from these five sermons about the death of Christ is this. The vicarious death of Christ means Jesus suffered on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity once and for all. The term vicarious simply means that, that one would take the place of another for the benefit of the other. So Jesus took our punishment and our place on the cross so we could experience his glorious grace in our life today. Now the key thought that I want to share with you today for today's sermon, and if you walk away with anything, it is this. The day Jesus was crucified was the day mankind could be justified. The day Jesus was crucified was the day mankind could be justified. I find it so interesting that throughout all of history, all of the weight of the sin that, that was experienced in the world, whether it was thought, word, or deed, from the day Adam was created until the day that mankind will no longer be on this earth, Jesus paid the penalty for sin once and for all. And he did that so that we could have access to God and be justified as if we'd never sinned before. 
And so today, I, I admit today, I am a wretched sinner and I deserve to be executed by the holy, righteous God of the universe. But in his, in his generous, merciful grace and love, he has spared that punishment that I deserve. And he put that on Jesus on the cross. Now, that being said, we're going to look at five scenes today at the very ending of the life of Jesus Christ. And the first one today is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is observed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're going to emphasize here in Matthew, and then I will take you to Luke's gospel to, to read about one other thing about these thieves. But look at verse number 32. As we walk through this scene this is the day that Jesus was crucified. So as we think about those who experienced throughout history being executed by being boiled alive in, in oil or being um, executed in other ways, we see that Jesus was a man who experienced the most gruesome way to die. And in the previous scene, we found out that he was flogged or scourged and what that means, normally in the ancient world, in the Roman world, they would, they would usually, usually lay 39 lashes to a man before they would be crucified. We don't know exactly how many lashes was upon Jesus, but he was enough to where he was no longer recognized by his own family. And so after that, they, would, they made him carry his cross, but obviously after being punished in such a way, there's no way he could carry that heavy cross. So they find this man, probably a, a larger guy, and what I mean by that is taller and, and bulky, maybe strong, and they get him to help carry the cross and bear the cross of Christ. Now, whether he is carrying it by himself or helping Christ, it's probably either or here in this scene. And, and we know that in this scene, he's traveling down this long pathway and road from the place that he was scourged until this place called Golgotha. And here we see in verse 33, it speaks about how he's going to this place called Golgotha. And, and if you have ever seen pictures in Israel, there are a handful of places where you look at this little hill and the side of the hill literally looks like a human skull. And that's why it's called Golgotha. And then the Bible says in verse 34 that somebody comes up to him and gives him vinegar to drink. In other words, this was, this was either vinegar or some type of sour wine. That's literally what vinegar is. And so here it says that when he began to drink this, he did not want it and he refused it. And then the Bible says in verse 35 that he was crucified. And this literally means, now, now the Gospel of Matthew doesn't emphasize this. It doesn't talk about how they drove those stakes in his wrist. Now there's two ways to think about this. Either he did it in his palms or right here in, in this part of his wrist. And I would incline that it was underneath his palm in this part of his wrist to where when the, when the stake was lodged in, it would be held by his bones and it wouldn't rip off when he's on the cross. So they drove those stakes in his wrist, in his feet, while he had the crown of thorns. And this is after he had all those lashes and was whipped brutally. And that's what it means when he was crucified. And there, an open shame, naked for all the world to see, he took our shame. And he took our sin. And then the Bible says that they, 
ripped off his garments here, and they begin casting lots. In a sense, they're like rolling dice to see which one is going to get it, perhaps. And then this corresponds to, to, the, to the Old Testament, and in fact, it is Psalm 22. And I want, you to, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 22 because it's so important to see how connected both Testaments are with the Word of God. And if Jesus is the Messiah, then surely we could go back into the Old Testament and read about this scene and parts of his life, especially his death, that would correspond to the Old Testament prophets. Because the Old Testament prophets predicted that a Messiah would come and do mighty miracles and die a death. But in Psalm 22 in verse number 18, of course, this is a Psalm of David. And so a lot of scholars some of them think that this was something that only happened to David, whereas I would believe that the events in Psalm 22 most likely did happen to David himself in his life, but it also predicts about the Messiah to come. And so in verse number 18, the Bible here speaks, looking into the future about Jesus, how they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And this is corresponding here to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 35, about how spoken by the prophet, now notice, it doesn't say the psalmist. It says the prophet. And so when you read the Psalms, you need to understand the Psalms is not just a book about worshiping God through music. It is literally messianic in nature. That it is predicting the future events of the Messiah. And then the Bible says in verse 36 of Matthew 27, the people sat down and watched. Now it's one thing to execute somebody. But in my mind, it's another thing to sit down and watch them go through this pain. My mind couldn't handle it. Whether we're talking about somebody swallowing a pill or sitting at an electric chair or right here in the scene of a crucifix, I can't handle that, man. And it's hard to watch. But they were sitting there watching it. And in the Roman culture, they would often, whatever that criminal was charged with, they would take it and put it on a sign and nail it above them on the cross. And here, it's interesting, when you study all four Gospels, all four of them say something else slightly different. But I think what was the, probably what was written on that piece of wood was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Speaking about, this is Jesus, who is from Nazareth, and he had claimed to be the King of the Jews. And then verse 38 speaks about how there were two thieves, or as one gospel writer writes, malefactors. They were also crucified with them. Now, we don't know if they went through the scourging or not. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I would lean towards they didn't go through the scourging that Jesus did because Jesus died a lot sooner than them. But maybe they did. And here the Bible says one was on his right hand, one was on the left hand. And then in verse number 39, this is interesting. Not only are there people watching this, but they are walking up to Jesus while he's on the cross and reviling him. And this term right here in the King James, in verse 39, it says reviled. It's the exact same word that we get blasphemed from. So when they are coming up to him, they are reviling him and speaking ill of him and literally blaspheming him. They're coming up to him and saying, oh, Oh, Jesus, you said that you could destroy the temple that took Solomon seven years to build, by the way, and you would rebuild it in three days. Well, if you are really the Son of God like you said you were, why won't you save yourself and come down off that cross? And then the Bible says, likewise, the chief priests. Now, I find it interesting that the chief priests are joining in on this. 
out of all the people in the Jewish world and mine that should have known this was the Messiah predicted by the psalmist and predicted by Jeremiah and Daniel and all the other prophets, they chose to not believe it. And then the Bible says they were mocking him. And then the scribes, these were the ones who... Can you imagine a scribe is the one who's writing down the book of Isaiah and copying it word for word and letter for letter and line and line? And then copying the, the Pentateuch, and most of them probably had the entire first five books of the Bible memorized because they wrote it down so many times. They should have saw the connection. They didn't. And then the elders, the leaders of the Jewish people. This is the Sanhedrin, the 70 that came together in addition to the high priest to make decisions. And here are the leaders of Israel who persuaded the crowd in the previous scenes to crucify Jesus, coming up to him and mocking him and ridiculing him and reviling him while he's on the cross. Then they go on to say, in fact, it looks like they, that these elders and scribes and chief priests are looking to the crowd now. And now it, it seems like to me that they're saying, look, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. If he is the king of the Jews and king of Israel, let him come off that cross right now, and then we will believe him. I'm just crazy enough to believe that if Jesus did come down off that cross that day, they would still not believe him. Jesus could have slapped them silly five million times, and they still wouldn't have believed him. And in fact, I'm reminded of what I think it's Luke's gospel said, that even if somebody came back from the dead, and I think it's Luke 16, that they wouldn't believe because they have the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So if you can't believe in Jesus just based upon the word of God, my friend, there's nothing we could do that would make you ever believe him. And then they go on to say he trusted in God in his life. Let God deliver him now whom he so trusted. He did say, I am the son of God. And then the Bible says the thieves here who were crucified with them. In fact, we know one of them for sure began to ridicule him. And now if you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke's gospel, I want to show you this scene. Because Matthew's gospel just doesn't highlight this here. Luke chapter 23. And so here we see that that people are passing by him, probably these Roman soldiers are mo mocking him and ridiculing him. Then the Jewish leaders are mocking him and ridiculing him. And then in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, well, we read about in Matthew how the thieves here are kind of ridiculing him. But, but in, Ma excuse me, in Luke 23, verse 39, we see that one of the thieves or one of the malefactors who are hanging on him railed him just like the others. In other words, the same word here, it's used for our term blasphemy, They're ridiculing him and railing him and, and speaking ill saying, if you are this Christ, save not only yourself, but save us too as well. Yeah. And then verse 40, the other begins to rebuke him, the other thief, and says, don't you fear God? Don't you see that that we are in the same condemnation and under the same judgment here, and we are, are rightly judged and justly judged, but, but this man is innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. And he's not worthy of this punishment. And then, it's so cool here, that in the scene of Jesus being crucified, he still works a miracle. He still saves a life. 
And it reminds me today, whether you're knocking on death's door or whether you're just a little child, God can save you. God can miraculously step into your life and redeem your lost soul. And here, this thief who's hanging on the cross, a criminal, a malefactor, looks to him and looks to Jesus as Lord. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. My friends, this is one of the clearest passages in Scripture that remind us that salvation is by grace through faith. That we don't need to be sprinkled or poured upon or dunked in order to receive salvation. We don't have to go through a year of becoming a church member or catechism classes in order to obtain salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone and faith alone. And here Jesus is, is at work. But then the, the scene goes on. And, and by the way, I want to just pause right here and just say, you see the thief on the cross and these re Roman soldiers and then these religious people, they're all saying, if you are the son of God, as if he didn't have to say anything else. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried walking on water? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can't walk on water unless you got a surfboard. <laughs> then you're surfing on the water. I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to walk up to a cemetery and call out somebody's name and that person going to walk out of the grave. I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to walk into a hospital and, and be able to heal somebody who is blind or heal somebody who cannot hear or heal somebody who is a leper. I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to take somebody's ear after it was chopped off in the Garden of Gethsemane and pick it up and put it back onto somebody's skull. And so did Jesus have to say, I am Jehovah in the flesh? No. His works displayed that he was God incarnate. Nobody else could do it. And so if, 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 no, no, he was, and he is, and he always will be the son of God. And in fact, in, in, in John's gospel, I believe it's chapter five, if my memory serves me correct, where he is ascribing himself to be the son of God and how calling God his father, the Pharisees and scribes said, hey, he's saying he's equal with God. And then we see that the Bible moves forward here and to the second scene from verses 45 down to verse 56. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but now let's look at the actual death of Jesus Christ. Remember the key thought today, kind of one sermon point if you will, the day Jesus was crucified was the day mankind could be justified. And we see that Jesus did his justification work even to the man on the cross hanging with him. But then in verse 45, the Bible says, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Now, let's pause right here. Our calendar and our system of day is very different than the Jewish mind of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Their day officially began in the evening of what we would call 6 p.m. And we go 24 hours until 6 p.m. And that would be a day. And here, sometimes the Bible speaks about the first hour of the day. And what that means is from 6 a.m., to 12 p.m., etc. It's speaking about from 6 a.m. That is beginning the first hour of the day, of the morning. And so here it speaks about the sixth hour. There was darkness. And this is around noon. Some commentators and historians say that Jesus might have been placed on that cross around 9 a.m. 
the third hour of the day. And then at the sixth hour of the day, there was darkness all over the earth. We don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was a storm come in or maybe just God covered the sun so that the world would be darkened. And then the Bible says all the way to the ninth hour, so about 12 p.m. our time to about six, excuse me, to about 3 p.m. our time, there was darkness all over the world. And then the Bible says that around the ninth hour, around 3 p.m., Jesus lifts up his voice and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, by the way, is a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1 that I just shared with you a few moments ago. And in this moment, Jesus seems to be forsaken by God the Father on the cross because it is in this moment that Jesus has upon his shoulders the weight of every sin that was ever committed in the past and in the future. Lying, stealing, disobeying your parents, parents mistreating their children, um, adultery, lust, anything you can ever imagine, murder, hatred, in this moment, all that sin was on the shoulders of Jesus. And it's no wonder he sweat as if great drops of blood in the garden because he knew what he was about to go through. And this is, my sin is laying on him right now, and your sin. And in, as John writes in 1 John, and the sins of the entire world. And in fact, Hebrews says that Jesus tasted death for every man. So in other words, that this salvation has the opportunity for any human being that's ever lived to cry out to God and receive this redemption. And here, Jesus felt forsaken by the Father. And then, verse 47, the Bible says, some of them stood by and they're saying, oh man, this guy's calling for Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And then one goes and grabs a sponge and fills it up with, with vinegar or maybe even what some would call sour wine, and they bring it to him to give him to drink on a reed or a stick. And then the rest says, hey, hey, hold on a second. Let it be. Let, let us just see if this Elijah is going to come or not and save him. And then verse 50, it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a very loud voice, the Bible says he yielded up the ghost. This was the moment that Jesus died. And then instantly we see three interesting events that took place. Not only is the world of that area covered in complete darkness here, the sun is not shining, but the Bible says the moment that he cries out and he dies, that the first thing we see is the veil of the temple is torn in two. But the most interesting thing about the temple being torn in two is the fact that it's not torn from the bottom to the top, but it's torn from the top to the bottom. In my mind, it's signifying to us that God is the one making sure this temple is torn. And now this right here, that, that veil would separate the people from entering into the Holy of Holies here, eventually going into that place. And we know that the Old Testament revealed to us that the, only the high priest could go into there once and would, in a sense, be the intercessor for the people of God in the Old Covenant. But now God is revealing to us in this scene that people no longer have to go through an earthly high priest. That now the way to have access to God is through the high priest, Jesus Christ. And anybody can. You, me, a little boy, a little girl, an old man or an old woman. Anybody can. And then it says that the earth did quake. And the rocks were torn in two. So an earthquake shakes the world. The temple is torn. 
the veil is at least. And then the, the earthquake shakes the world. And then the Bible says the graves are opened. Now, I believe, I think if you read the word correctly here, there's a little bit of debate among scholars, but I think if you read the word correctly in verse 53, I think the event here is, is what's taking place at the moment Jesus dies is the, te- the, 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 the veil is torn in two, the earthquake shakes the world, the rocks are torn, and then the graves are open. And that exactly happened right when Jesus died. But then after Jesus rose again, some of these people that were in those graves came out and were seen by people. Now, I, I'm not going to be uh, foolish enough to try to name who these people were. I don't know. We can only speculate. Maybe these were the ones that Jesus didn't get to to heal, and so they are now healed. And I would believe that they would experience a, another death like Lazarus and some of the others that Jesus rose from the grave. So maybe this is his final miracle that he performed even after he died. But then, in verse 54... The Bible says this centurion. Now, this word centurion comes from the concept that he was a, a, most likely a Roman soldier who oversaw about a hundred different other people. And so here's a leader, a captain, and he looks with all those that were watching Jesus and he sees this earthquake and they all begin to fear. And he said, truly this was the Son of God. We've witnessed a lot of funerals, and we've seen a lot of people go on to be with Jesus, just even within our church. But I've never seen, when somebody crosses through that doorway, these events take place. And in fact, we'll never see this event take place again like this. And so just these things that took place after Jesus died reminds us and should point us to the fact that he is who he said he was, the Son of God. But then it goes on to say in verse 55, there were women there beholding from afar. And these were the ones that followed him all the way from Galilee. And they came and they began to, I guess it says here, minister to him, but they perhaps began to help clean him up. And among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus and, and Joseph and then, and then the mother of the Zebedee's children. And this is the second scene. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ. But now, the third scene does not actually take place in Matthew's gospel. It takes place in John's gospel. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we'll look at verses 31 through 37. And this third scene today is the piercing of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, our key thought for today's message is the day Jesus was crucified was the day mankind could be justified. He's been crucified, now he's died, and now after he's dead, the soldiers see that he's died, and they are going to pierce him. But John's gospel, chapter 19, gives us a special glimpse of what exactly was going on during this time that Jesus died. The Bible says that this day was this preparation day. It was the day right before the Sabbath, and... The Bible says that they did a lot of different things on that day. And because it was the day of preparation, they didn't want the bodies to be on the cross on the Sabbath day later that evening. 
And then the Bible says that Sabbath day was a high day. Now, what in the world does that mean? This means it was an extra holy day that occurred several times throughout the calendar year. And one of the times it occurs is during the Passover, which was taking place when Jesus died. So it was like, as one commentator said, a doubly holy day. But what they did is they would come and they would break the legs of the ones hanging on the cross. They would go to the two thieves to the right and to the left of Jesus and they broke his legs and then he died. You see on the cross your legs were were stabilized to where every time that, that they would exhale and inhale they would either go down and then they would have to scoot up so they could breathe again and then they would exhale and then they would go down. And so their legs were very helpful in them just remaining alive on the cross. And so you come and break the leg then it would make them suffocate and die faster. But they come to Jesus, and they see Jesus is already dead. So verse number 33 says that they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers, in verse 34, takes a spear and stabs him in his side. And that brings out blood and water. And this was done that it might be fulfilled by the prophets. But John, notice he's writing here, and in verse 35, he says, I am an eyewitness to this account, and I saw this with my own eyes, and this is what happened. Now, you weren't there, I weren't there, but we have an eyewitness account named John who saw it all take place in verse 35. But then in verse 36, the Bible says that there's a passage in the Old Testament. In fact, there's three of them, and I'll share with them in a second, that a bone of him shall not be broken. Now, this corresponds back to... Uh, to the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12, and Psalm 34. Those three verses speak about how the Messiah bones would not be broken. And then verse 37, it says, there is another passage that said, they shall look on him whom they pierce. And this corresponds to the book of Zechariah chapter 12. How people will look upon this man, this Savior, this Messiah, whom they pierce. And that is why Jesus was stabbed in the side. And also, when the blood and water came out, it would signify that this man was a dead man. That's scene three. If you take your Bibles back to Matthew 27, we'll see scene four. He was crucified. He died. They pierced his side. But now we're going to see the burial of Jesus Christ. From verses 57 to verse 61. The Bible says, When the evening had come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. Now, I just want to pause right here. The Bible says he was his disciple. I think so many times, because Jesus was kind of nomadic, he didn't really have a place to sleep, he didn't own a house, and have all the things that we have today. I think sometimes we, we think that Jesus only was out to reach the poor. But that's not true. Jesus was out to reach the poor and the rich and anybody else in between. And so here, one of his disciples... Some of them might have been poor, but this one named Joseph was a wealthy man. So there's nothing wrong with being poor. There's nothing wrong with being rich. It's all about how you use that money and whether you make money your God or not. And here the Bible says that, that he goes to Pilate, Joseph, and begs that he would receive the body to take care of, of the body. And Pilate delivers him the body. And then Joseph takes the body, wraps it in a clean linen cloth, Verse 60, the Bible says that he laid it in his own new tomb. So Joseph just had these people come. Perhaps they were contractors. They came and they carved out a place inside the rock or the, the cliff or the mountain so that he could have a tomb. And so he takes the body of Jesus 
and puts them in his tomb. So imagine this. A wealthy man gave a poor man a cemetery. And that poor man was our Messiah. Yes, I know he's, he owns everything in the world because he created it all. So in a sense, he's the richest entity ever in existence. But at the same time, when he came and lived among us, he lived an extremely humble life, even to the effect of poverty. Couldn't even afford his own tomb. And so there they place a, a, a great stone before the, the grave site, the sepulcher, as the King James says, and then they departed. And then verse 61, the Bible says that, that there, Mary, both Marys were there sitting over against this grave. The fifth and final scene today is the guard at the tomb of Jesus Christ. He's been crucified, he died, he was pierced, he's buried. But now the guards are placed before the grave. Verse 62, the Bible says, The next day, that is the day that followed the day of preparation. These chief priests and Pharisees came to Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember, remember that this... Now notice they didn't say this teacher or this rabbi. They called him a deceiver. This man full of great subtlety and trickery. In other words, what they're saying. They said that this deceiver said that while he was alive after three days, I will rise again. And they say to Pilate, why don't you get some soldiers and, and make them guard the sepulcher and the grave until the, the third day. So the disciples won't come in and steal the body and claim that he rose from the dead. And Pilate said, Pilate didn't seem to like these people that much. And he said, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. In other words, he says, you have your own guard, make him go sit there. And so they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I don't care how well they sealed that tomb that day. It wasn't going to hold the Messiah. They could have sealed it with all the modern fancies that we have today. And it wouldn't have held him. And as we'll see very soon, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. But he rose again. And that is the great hope of the Christian faith, is that Jesus came and he died on Calvary, paid our penalty and our sin debt, and all we have to do is put our faith and trust in Christ. Now, as you read through this scene and the other scenes, there's probably one movie that comes to your mind that helps us try to picture these events. And that is the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson was surely no stranger to Hollywood and the film business. But in 2004, I think he took somewhat of a leap of faith by releasing this movie. Now, did he get everything right in this movie? No. It doesn't follow the biblical account precisely. But that is Hollywood for you. But what I think it did do is it presented to us to the best of maybe our ability of what it might have been like for Jesus to go through that beating and hang on the cross. But I would say that in, 
in spite of all this stuff, it just showed the very final 12 hours of Jesus' life. And surprisingly enough, it is in the top 10 as far as R-rated movies concern. It's in the top 10 most grossed film in that genre. But then this other thing said, the film grossed $612 million worldwide and became the fifth highest grossing film in 2004 at the end of its theatrical run. Whether you like that movie or don't like that movie is not necessarily the point. I think God was sovereign over this movie and allowed a guy like Mel Gibson and maybe a couple others to write it and to be inspired by the biblical text so that the entire world could almost try to visualize what the Messiah went through. But I will also say this, that that film only scratches the surface of what Jesus went through on that cross to rescue you and to rescue me from our sins. You see, the day Jesus was crucified was the day mankind could be justified. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.